Um, If you have your Bibles, though, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be dealing with um, one of the most uh, famous stories that is actually found in the Bible. And uh, I don't know if you know this. I don't know how how much you've kind of compared uh, the different Gospels one to another. You maybe even asked that question. Why are there four Gospels? Why four? Um, we, we We don't really know. I mean, there could be a number of different answers. But the Gospels give us a portrait, a picture of who Jesus Christ is and the claims that he made about himself. The Gospels um, give us actually insight into what's going on in the individual churches or individuals that those Gospels were written for. Luke chapter 1, Luke says, I've written down these things. I've carefully investigated these things. Theophilus, who was a gentleman in the Roman military, I've investigated these things for you so that you might know about what Jesus began to do and to teach. John says uh, in John chapter 20, Not everything could be written down about what Jesus did, but these things, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, these things were written down so that you might believe and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Matthew, it appears, wrote his gospel to a church that was struggling, to a church that was dealing with persecution. And Matthew wants his church to realize this is the Jesus that... um, you believe in and that it's worth suffering for. So the gospel writers um, take in the stories, the accounts of Jesus, and they present them in a way so that their audiences can know who Jesus Christ is and find this new life. But they didn't record everything. Um, In fact, it's interesting that there are only a few things that are actually recorded in all four gospels. Did you know that? Mary uh, and, and her encounter with an angel. It's not in all four Gospels. Okay? Um, the, the Magi coming, like all of our Christmas stuff, not, not in all four Gospels. When you go back and you, you look at some of, the, some of the great stories, some of the great parables. Parable of the Good Samaritan. No, only just one Gospel. It's interesting that when you look at all of these stories and encounters that Jesus went through, the gospel writers selected which ones that they wanted to share, I believe under the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit, and therefore it becomes very important for you and I to realize, but what did they make sure they never missed? They made sure they never missed that Jesus was baptized by John. They made sure that they never missed, interestingly enough, that Jesus was anointed by a sinful woman. That made the list. They made sure that that nobody, nobody who would ever read a gospel would ever fail to realize that Jesus came in with a great triumphal entry. That Jesus was in fact tried, um, was later crucified, was later buried, was later resurrected. Like we're not missing those. And the feeding of the 5,000. There's no way we're missing that one. The feeding of the 5,000 is the one story that every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, says we've got to tell that story. That story is, is, is mandatory. It has to make the cut. Why? Well, first of all, let me show you where they're found just so that you can even go back and take a look. Uh, It's good for you to read these encounters and to kind of even see how each gospel writer presents them. You will find it in our text today, Matthew chapter 14. You will also find it in Mark chapter 6. It is found in Luke chapter 9. 
And then the one I really want you to just be aware of because there's no way of avoiding, I had to make sure, and this is a kind of a conviction I have, is I need to preach Matthew 14 today. But John 6 is the only account that actually has not only the miracle itself, the feeding of the 5,000, but it actually has Jesus' sermon about that feeding. And John's the only one that records what we would know as the sermon on the bread of life. John 6. So I, I, I'm going to end with the, in this message with some, some great words that Jesus himself gives in regards to what this miracle is about. But we see in the gospel writers an important message. You have to, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to know that Jesus Christ fed 5,000 people. Is that kind of interesting to you? It's interesting to me. <laughs> like to me, if I had to pick one, I don't know, the story of the prodigal son? Like, that's a big one, isn't it? I mean, what a powerful story. And, and he welcomes the son home, and he has a feast for him. Like, that's got to make it. How about even, like, the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, no, didn't make it in all of them. Completely missed in two of them. How about the raising of Lazarus? Does that not just kind of ring, like, huge? Just John. He's the only one. I, I really do believe sometimes that John, who's writing his gospel, probably 20 to 30 years after the first three gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I really think John's writing it going, I can't believe you guys forgot this one. I really can't. How did you forget this one? Right? How, how, how on earth could you have missed? But you didn't have to do that with this one. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, when we're just dealing with the story itself this morning. Now, I need to remind you, you're going to see a word here in a second, the word this. Now, when Jesus heard this, what is the this? It is the previous story that I pre preached on last week. That John the Baptist was killed for his preaching against Herod. Remember, which Herod? Okay, we kind of went through that last week. Um, Herod Antipas, John preached against his marital situation and it got him in trouble and it got his head severed from the rest of his body. And Jesus, his cousin, Jesus, the one whom John preached about, hears, uh, Jesus hears about this, this, this one that he loves and uh, the one who is preparing the way and Jesus is somehow moved by this. So we see in verse 13, now when Jesus had heard this, John was dead. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. That word desolate place is sometimes translated desert, which doesn't mean sand dunes. It just means no one else is around. No one else is around. And Jesus would do this often. Jesus, when he would hear about different things that were happening, which really shows us um, the depth and the riches of who Jesus of Nazareth really is. He is not some kind of a figure that just kind of floated through history, unaffected by the events that are going on around him. This is one of the beauties of us thinking about who Jesus Christ is, literally spending time thinking about who Jesus Christ in reality, in history, truly was. Because Jesus was fully divine, fully God, born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ was, in fact, God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. That's, that's a big deal. 
So Jesus Christ is God, and you and I kind of have a view of God that you just kind of move through history, like unaffected, like you're just, you're God, right? I'm God. First of all, I don't think we have a biblical understanding of God. We, sadly, I think many of us have more of like a Greek understanding of the gods than truly a biblical one. A God who weeps, a God who cares deeply, a God who serves his people. By the way, because that's his nature. He's, ever, he's patient and kind and good. This is the picture of the biblical Yahweh. Jesus is God. Jesus is also human, fully human. Take nothing away from his humanity. Take nothing away. If I ever say anything that somehow makes Jesus less human than 100% human, then I have done an injustice. I technically have preached heresy. And Jesus hears the death of John, and Jesus goes away, and Jesus needs time to pray and to think and to reflect and to prepare does that not just kind of blow your mind a little bit? I mean, this encounter that we, I see here, along with a number of others and times in which Jesus would act like in a very human way, which actually is all the time, there are times where it really just stands out like the temptation. Jesus hears of the death of John the Baptist. He gets in a boat. He goes out to a desolate place by himself. Now, but when the crowds heard of this, the crowds that have been coming around him were actually in the northern part, were near the Sea of Galilee. When the crowds heard about this, they followed him on foot from the town. So they come out of the cities to the desolate places. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion, meaning he was moved on the inside from down deep, from down low. Jesus didn't just go, oh, look at them, they're, they're, they're so cute. No, Jesus is moved. Literally, it sometimes can be translated as kind of like a violent moving. Inside, he has, has compassion on them and he healed their sick. So notice that the compassion of Jesus Christ caused him to do something. And now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the loaves, the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And all those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. It's interesting, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't really give much commentary. They just describe Jesus being moved by the encounter of John the Baptist's death going away. 
Mark and Luke do a, a kind of a, a more comprehensive job of describing, and this is important, that this comes right after the disciples have been sent away to go out into the countryside and to heal the sick and to perform all of these miracles. And in Mark and in Luke, they all come back and they tell Jesus of all these amazing things they did. Jesus, I was in this one town and this woman had this sick person and I healed her. Jesus, you wouldn't understand, there was this one person and he was demon-possessed and I cast it out. Jesus, there was this one person and he had leprosy and all the things that Jesus had given them the authority to do, they went out into those towns and they did it. And they come back and they're sharing with Jesus this exciting news. It's important for you to realize like that's the context. They're coming back excited about what they've done. They're excited about this kingdom that is now moving. They are now actively engaged in all of these things. And instead of just focusing on of what all of they have done, Matthew points out a couple of things that are good for us to hear. First of all, number one, that Jesus is truly compassionate. So he's in the boat, okay? He's in this boat. Um, and being near the Sea of Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, it's really helpful for me to see it now. Um, very visible. You could almost see any boat that's on the Sea of Galilee, and even though the boats are probably a little smaller than you think they are, Jesus is in this boat and he sees this crowd. And it's interesting the number of times, not only when Jesus wants to go away, but when Jesus then is disrupted again by the needs of the people. And Jesus, the text describes him this way. This isn't a preacher trying to kind of milk it, you know, trying to, trying to gain sympathy. But Jesus, he says here, has compassion. He went ashore. He's removed, he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. So Jesus is not going to stand back. Jesus is not going to stand removed from the people around him, but instead he has compassion. Um, one of the other gospel writers actually puts it this way. I'm sure you've heard this statement before. Jesus had compassion on them because why? Do you remember? Because they were like what? They were like sheep without a shepherd. That's why he felt sorry for him. He looked out at the masses. I don't know how you look at crowds, but Jesus looks at the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were just lost. Interestingly enough, if I can just kind of maybe share a little bit kind of how I look at crowds. When I look at crowds, um, I, I, I sometimes wish I could be in that crowd. You ever kind of looked at the crowd? And I'm, Man, I wish I was invited to be part of that crowd. I've looked at crowds, even crowds that are making stupid decisions, and I, I'm really good at judging the crowd. You good at judging the crowd? I'm really good at judging the crowd. I'm really good, especially at foolish crowds. I'm really good at judging those crowds as being absolutely foolish. I can take large sections of society and, and, and literally because of my understanding, my education, my moral integrity, I'm, it's easy for me to kind of sit back and to just oh, look at those pitiful crowds and Jesus had compassion on them because like sheep without a shepherd they're lost they're going in another direction Jesus helps me see that how I look at people actually matters and if I'm going to have the heart of Jesus if you are going to have the heart of Jesus then when you look at the crowds Make sure that you see them from a God-divine perspective. 
And when you look at the crowds that are making foolish choices and foolish decisions, and and before you just decide to render judgment, do, do you realize just how lost and desperate the crowds are without Jesus? Do you ever think about that? I'm reminded that when I look at the crowds of people gathering, protesting, commenting, that there's more going on than they realize. I mean, this crowd's just excited. Man, Jesus is amazing. He can heal, and he can do all these amazing things. And and we need to be a part of that. And Jesus looked at them. We would have went, man, oh, you're just using me. And Jesus said, you need me. When was the last time you looked at a crowd and really thought, man, you know what these people need? And not not in a judgmental way. You know who those people need? They need Jesus. And you never lift a word to help one of them. Jesus looks at this really lost crowd and he has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. The second thing that we actually see is Jesus the miracle worker. He's not just compassionate, but when God steps in, when, when, when God does, and I, I think you need to notice this, he had compassion on them, and I want you to hold off the idea that he feeds them. Because it doesn't say he had compassion on them and gave them lunch tickets. It doesn't say that. It says he had compassion on them, and he healed their, their sick. That's what he did. So he looks at those that are in desperate need and he goes out into their midst, comes in out of his time to be alone. He goes back into the crowd and he heals their sick. And, And we again see that this is what God does when he engages our brokenness. When the kingdom of God comes, the sick are healed at the hands of Jesus. But then we get the rest of this story, which I find both um, interesting and even somewhat uh, perplex, perplexing. When I, when I look at this story, and I've, I've heard a number of people describe it, I remember listening to a very famous, very um, uh, powerful preacher give a message on this, and here's how he told the story of the feeding of the 5,000. That Jesus himself was an amazing, amazing, amazing um, example to his disciples. And so Jesus really cares for people and the needs of people. And so most likely what happened is Jesus looked at this crowd and he just realized just how how hungry they were and how messed up they were. And so he decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of pull from, from the midst of these people here. I'm going to kind of stir up in their hearts the need to be compassionate like me. And so he says, who, who, who needs to eat? Who, who's hungry? And everybody raises their hand, but... You know, everybody just doesn't realize that, man, I I should share what I have. And instead of it being 5,000 plus women and children in desperate need, it's just a a selfish group of 5,000 people. And finally, a little boy raises his hand. I have five loaves and two fish. And when the crowd sees the incredible generosity of this young boy, then all of a sudden one man stands up and says, I've got a couple of fish too. And someone else, I've got some loaves. And what Jesus did by pulling them together was to pull at the heartstrings of their general compassion of the crowds, and that is how that miracle happened. And I really sat there and I listened to that message, and I thought, that's not what the story says. That's not the way it's described. Jesus isn't sitting there trying to manipulate the crowds and say, listen, come on, guys. 
we can do this. We all know we got a fish or a loaf somewhere. Come on, look at the little boy, look at what he did. Oh, you're right, Jesus, I was just being selfish. I brought lunch for two, right? That's not what this story is trying to describe by any stretch of the imagination. And I remember thinking, not only did that preacher probably struggle with the issue of, of someone, Jesus, producing a miracle, but he also, as a preacher, is trying to pull at the heartstrings. Like, that just works well, right? Like, come on, guys, we all should be compassionate like Jesus. Come on, guys, we all should be willing to give our, 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 our little bit. And the truth is, if you, if you just give a little bit to God, and if we all just give a little bit to God, have you heard this sermon? He can take that little bit that we give to him, and he can multiply it. Give me an amen. Okay, by the way, that's, that's true. It's true. Not this text. This text isn't about you and I giving a little bit and God taking it and multiplying it. It's not what this story is about at all. It's interesting. Jesus does look at them and say, hey, why don't you feed them? Because the disciples in all the accounts, Jesus, we should send them all away. We should send them all away. They need to go home, Jesus. It's late, and we're far away. They need to start walking now. You also need to realize, like, these, aren't, these people aren't starving to death. It's just supper. So I know there's probably some people who are going, I feel like I'm starving to death, but they're really not. This isn't Jesus feeding those people who are almost about to die. That's not what's happening in this story. There are a large group of people who came to Jesus to hear him, to, to be healed by him, to kind of be ministered by him. And at the end of the day, Jesus says, I want to feed these people. Turns to his 12 disciples, take care of that. They've just come back doing some pretty amazing things. Hey, take care of that. And the disciples do this. Um, we don't have enough money. It would take a lot of money for us to feed a crowd this large. Now, now, let, me, now let me kind of step in here again and say this. Be very careful being critical of the disciples here. No gospel writer blames the disciples for their assessment. Not one gospel writer describes Jesus or offers their own commentary that the disciples had little faith. I really don't think Jesus expected the disciples to go, okay, stand back, Jesus. You know, we have recorded in the gospels the disciples doing a lot of things that Jesus did. Raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons, cleansing lepers. You know what we don't have them doing? Feeding people miraculously. Jesus turns to the disciples, you feed them, and they look at him, and I believe each gospel writer is pointing out that they are very right when they say, we can't do this, Jesus, like, we can't do this. Like, what you're asking of us is clearly outside of our ability. Which reminds me of, which reminds me of this. And I want you to hear this, because this is so important in this narrative. There are some things that only Jesus can do. There are some things that only Jesus can do. By the way, Jesus has no problem looking at Peter and going, why is your faith so small? Jesus has no problem making commentary on little faith. He has no problem saying, why didn't you just ask me and I would have given you the power to heal the... None of that. 
Jesus just, in the midst of this exchange, you feed them. We can't. Then bring them to me. Look at what Jesus says. Bring them here to me. Bring the five and the two to me. And, and watch what I do. There are some things that only Jesus can do. Now, why does this matter? Because I believe the reason why all of the gospel writers see this story as so important is because in this story, we actually see Jesus rising above some kind of just prophetic role, some kind of a kingly role, and we see Jesus assuming Messiah kind of stuff. Our guide kept telling us when we were in Israel over and over and over again, our guide kept telling us, listen, there were a number of other people that were known to be miracle workers. Even in the book of Acts, a number of Jewish leaders say, hey, we like to cast out demons. By whose name do you cast them out? So listen, I mean, I don't think that Jesus and the disciples were the only ones who did certain things by whether or not all of them were true or not, we don't know. But, but that doesn't really separate Jesus from everything else. Well, what could separate Jesus from just being a man of compassion, which is sometimes all we think of Jesus as? And he's just so compassionate. Have you heard this? Like Jesus is so compassionate. Jesus really loves you. Won't you please love him back? Come on, love him back. Like, think about how loving he is. Do you understand how loving he is? Do you know how sweet and kind he is? You should love him back. Look at what he did for you. You should love him back. Think about how much he did for you. You should love him back. That's not what they're doing here. This isn't a Jesus was compassionate, give him some compassion. This is Jesus standing up and assuming a place within Israel's history, kind of think through Israel's history, food is a big deal. God provides a garden, you can eat of everything. Well, except for this one tree, but you can eat of everything. Joseph goes away into Egypt, and he knows a famine is coming, and what does Joseph do? Joseph wisely controls things so that food would be around throughout the famine. That's a good one. Here's one. After Moses had been used by God to bring his people up out of Egypt, and as they are walking through a desolate place, the people cry out, we are hungry. We are just so hungry. We're starving. Complaining, the text says. And God, through Moses, John 6 makes really clear um, explanation of this. God, through Moses, get the right emphasis, provided bread when they needed it. God fed his people when they needed it. And so I'm not surprised, I mean, if I had to pick a gospel writer, uh, Matthew would be the one to do it. Matthew's the one that has Jesus giving five, right? Like the, like the Pentateuch, the first five books. Jesus giving five great sermons. It's, it's Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, that has Jesus kind of on mountains speaking with authority. It's Matthew, right here in Matthew, where he points out that Jesus Christ gathers the people of Israel before him, and while they are hungry, Jesus, not his, not his followers, but Jesus, feeds them. He gives them bread to eat. See, what's fascinating is, and John 6 is the one that draws the most attention to this. Do you know what their response to this miracle is? 
Their response to this miracle is, we should make him king by force. That's their answer. Do you see what he just did? (laughs) He just fed us. Like, you get what he's saying? You get what he's implying? He's the Messiah. Let's, let's, Let's do this. One of the reasons why is because if there was one thing like a a nation, particularly a nation with an army, needed was a constant supply of food and and an army, a a people that could at someone's discretion be fed is virtually unstoppable. Like they understand that we need to make him king. He is saying something by the fact that he fed us. That's why I don't think Jesus is just disappointed in his disciples at all. I I think he kind of underlines that. You're right. You, You couldn't have done. You weren't even supposed to do something here. This is all about me, Jesus is pointing out. There are only things that Jesus can do. Now, I, I want to do this. I, I want to I kind of make sure that we catch like a really important applicational point on this. Because how, how do we apply this today? Like, I, it's good for the disciples to realize, yeah, right. I mean, we just, we, we can't expect to feed people. We might be able to heal them. We might be able to, but in the end, there's certain things that only Jesus can do. Now, now how do we use this today? Like, like when, when you're leaving here, how, how do you take home with you the idea that there are certain things that only Jesus can do? I'll tell you some ways in which I have realized it. Um, I, I, I'm a parent still. Even though they're all leaving us, I'm still a parent. And I, I've seen these two things happen in my own heart and in my own life. I am gonna make these kids the right kind of kids if it kills me. You been there? I'm gonna do this, I can do this. I've been there. And then have you been here? I give up, I can't deal with these kids. I'm talking, by the way, that's the same day, right? That's the start of the conversation and then 10 minutes later. And I remember when I began to realize this statement There are some things that only Jesus can do. And by the way, that didn't lead me into going, okay, I quit, I got nothing, I do nothing. But I began to realize that as God has given me certain responsibilities in my family, there are certain things that are outside of my ability to do that I have to trust Jesus with. And by the way, I'm not talking about, I get anxious about, I mean, I'm truly, this is the part that I'm working on, is that I genuinely give them over to Jesus. That I genuinely trust my children's spiritual growth and development with Jesus. Not not, not that I say I give it to Jesus and then freak out all the time, right? That's what most of us do. Usually when we say, well, I've just given that to God, it's like our way of saying, we've given up. No, no. Do you understand how real Jesus is? Like, do you you know that there are very real things that only Jesus can do in the development of your children? That you have a part and a role to play? That you can bear witness to and share and love and show compassion and do all of these other things and then there's a work that only Jesus can do? When I go to work. You ever go to work? 
And they begin to realize, wow, there's so much I can do, and I, I can fix this. I can, I can do, I got this. <laughs> I've been educated for this. I, I, I'm just going to put in more hours. I'm just going to, and, and then you come to that point where you're like, I, I quit. I can't do this. I quit. Man, we swing in a manic sense from, I got this, to I quit. Maybe the answer is that both of those are, are just I'm too human. Like maybe what you and I are called to do by God is to recognize the very real Jesus Christ and his engagement and his involvement in our lives. That Jesus Christ, who is very, very real, is actively involved and engaged in your home and where you work. He's engaged in your relationships. And by the way, there's things that you can do. There's things that we are called to do, to show compassion and to love and to speak words of encouragement, to rebuke, to hold one another accountable. And then there are things that you and I can't do. We cannot change the heart. We cannot provide those things that only Jesus can provide. There are certain things only the Messiah could possibly do. How about this? Man, I, I think I'm going to save myself. I think I can save myself. I think if I just work hard enough and try hard enough, if I can just be good enough, then in the end, like, God will love me. Like, God will care for me. Like, God will provide for me. If I just... See, no, you're, you're getting it wrong again. Like, there are only things that Jesus can do. That's why we are not here to celebrate us. We're not, here to, we're not here to just kind of, this isn't a pep rally for Jesus. This is a time where you and I come and it's one of those moments where Jesus looks at us and says, okay, why don't you go fix Stillwater? Like, why, why don't you go fix Africa? Like, why don't you go fix Mexico? You ever been there? Why don't you go fix your marriage? You ever, you ever had that happen? And I love this. I've learned this. Um... I can't. Like Jesus, like we don't have the money. We don't have, it's not even a money problem, but we don't have the money. We don't have, like we don't have the things necessary to do that. Like there's no way we can make those things happen. And Jesus, exactly. But you do have me. So I don't want to hear, let's quit. I don't, it literally is. Bring it to Jesus. Bring it to him. He is the one that can do it. He is the one who will accomplish it. He is the one who accomplished our salvation. He is the one that gives a meaning and a purpose to your life that your job will never do. He is the one that will give meaning and purpose to your relational context. And you can finally let your wife or your husband or your kids or whoever off the hook of being the one who will complete you and satisfy you because that is something that none of us could do with each other. You know where I've noticed it? I've really noticed it in church. Churches love to sell themselves. Come on, join us. We'll fix your marriage. We'll have a great place for your kids. Like, you really need to come to this church. It is so awesome. The preacher's great. The worship is great. Like, let me sell you on what this church can offer you. You been there? Yeah, that's, that's kind of what churches do nowadays. We peddle services. And then at the last bit, ta-da, Jesus. 
And I think we've gotten that wrong. I think we've gotten that backwards and upside down and convoluted. It's, it's a pretty broken system. I think what we should be doing instead is as we show compassion and as we are kind and as we are reaching out and as we are naturally those things, as we are naturally the church bearing witness to who Jesus Christ is, that in the end everyone walks away with Jesus, with him. And therefore, my challenge to you this morning is this. Don't accept anything less than Jesus. Like, don't accept a go piece, like a mission trip, and oh, I love being in Mexico. You don't understand, I've never felt more real than when I'm in Mexico. Like, don't trade that in. Don't, don't trade in Jesus for that. Man, I'll tell you, my life group, they are it. They are awesome. They're the reason why I'm here. They're the reason why I'm, they're the reason why. Like, don't trade that in. Like, like don't, don't confuse the benefits of Christ with Christ. My understanding, my, my, my understanding of who God is, and many of us have traded in a real relationship with a very real Jesus with some principles and some ideas about Jesus. Nope, Jesus says it this way. John 6, I have to go there as I close. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill and you ate, you've ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for food that perishes, things that you can do, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. This is what they say to Jesus when Jesus says, I want you to do the work of God. What is the work of God? Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him, the one that he has sent, that's Jesus. I love this, John 6, 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And I genuinely believe, and one of the reasons why I needed some time to just think and pray this morning is just how easy it is for me to trade in a lot of things, even things that happened in this room. I, I trade in like a very real experience and encounter with Jesus for that. And that's not what we're here to do. We're here to recognize just what Jesus can accomplish. And for those of us that have really come to this understanding just how desperate we are for Jesus, the beauty of it is, is that when you go to him, he truly will satisfy you. So do you find yourself like coming to church and still being hungry? Do you find yourself in a life group and still being hungry? Do you find yourself like going on a mission trip and coming back hungry? Do you find yourself doing a Bible study and leaving hungry and thirsty? And the answer for me many times is yes. And you wanna know why? because I didn't realize that it's not about those things. It is all about who? Jesus, the only one who can satisfy. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the reality of who you are in Christ. And God, I pray that as a church, we would do well to speak the truth about you, about your son. And that God, we would humbly um, give up 
lesser things for Jesus. And that, God, we would ask some very real questions about our relationship with him and what it means to trust him and follow him and obey him and to know him. And, God, I pray that from that we would realize just how critical and important it is for us to find true satisfaction and joy in him and in him alone. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen. Our good friend Drew Moss is going to kind of close us out with an important thought morning. Um, so, so as I'm sure all of you know, um, this week has been a difficult week for our country, um, one that has been tragic for a lot of people and, and for a lot of the um, relationships between people and communities in our, um, in our society and in our country. Um, went on Tuesday and Wednesday, two African-American men were shot and killed in encounters with the police. And on Thursday, um, 12 officers were shot in an act of terror, five of them killed in an act of terror and anger and outrage. And, and as soon as things like those happen in the world today, um, there are a lot of responses that start coming out through news outlets and through social media and around the water cooler at work, um, responses of anger and responses of sadness or of fear um, or of defensiveness or of outrage or of judgment and all kinds of responses. And it can be difficult and, and confusing in times like this to kind of determine what it looks like for us to respond as believers, as Christians. And so we just wanted to take a few minutes at the end of this service just to remind you to point out what we believe the Christian response ought to be in weeks like this. So I wanna mention three things to you real quick. The first is this, that as people who believe that every human being is made in the image of God, that our first response when tragedies like this take place ought not to be finger pointing or outrage or anger, but first and foremost, sadness. Um, That we ought to uh, mourn the fact that people who were made in love by God died in ways that they were not meant to die this week. Um, that, we ought to, that we ought to, in our lament, cry out to God to restore this world, to, to, to cry out on behalf of a broken world that is filled with sin and ask for his kingdom to come in righteousness and in justice and peace. The second thing I believe we do as Christians is we respond to anyone and everyone, particularly those who are in the body of Christ with us, we respond in compassion. As Romans 12 says, we weep with those who weep. And so a quick word to my Caucasian brothers and sisters, which is almost all of us in here. There are a lot of people who like to debate today. There are a lot of people who do want to debate today whether or not or how much injustice minorities really do experience today in America, whether that is real or perceived. But there is no way for us to deny the amount of injustice that minorities have experienced in this country historically, dating back to the very beginning 17 and 1800s with treatment of Native Americans and the slavery of the African community. And and it would probably be 
unwise of us to overlook the fact or to pretend as though none of that has any effects on or implications for today, as though all of that is just over. I understand that when we hear someone that we do not know on the other side of the country talking about how they are feeling like their rights are being violated, it is easy to be skeptical. But when a brother or sister of mine, someone who who I call a brother, someone who stands in my community, feels as though they or their community or their race is being wronged, it seems to me that the Christian response would be, regardless of where I end up landing on this issue, would be to be quick to listen to my brothers and sisters and slow to speak, ready to be compassionate. If there is someone in my family who says they are hurting, um, feel wronged, whether that is my brother or my son or my wife, um, then before I jump to try and argue all the reasons why they shouldn't, I first and foremost want to listen to them. And I believe that that ought to be true in the family of Jesus as well. Um, This, of course, it should go without saying to say that we can listen and at the same time hold the highest amount of honor and respect for men and women, police officers who risk their lives every day to protect us and care for us, the vast majority of whom do an incredible job, and some of them attending our church do an amazing job, and we can be grateful and honoring to them at the same time of listening to those who are in pain and feel hurt. The last way that I think um, we respond and we remember is this, that one of the fundamental components to the gospel is not just that Jesus is reconciling people to God by his death on the cross, but Paul says in Ephesians 2 that he is actually reconciling people to one another that he is drawing them together in peace and in unity, and not just for the sake of peace, that we can hold hands and sing kumbaya, but for the sake of declaring to the world the vast variety and beauty of the spectrum of God's glory, a church that is multi, um, multi-race, multinational, and, and this understanding from Genesis 12 all the way to the end, Revelation 22 says that, all of history is pointing to this, this day where image bearers from every tribe and tongue and nation will fall down and proclaim that Jesus is Lord and worship God. That is what he's aiming towards. And as a church, we are meant to be a picture of that future restoration that is coming. So it makes sense in a world that is broken by sin and that is filled with divisiveness and discord. It makes sense when things happen like this that people are going to respond with finger pointing and defensiveness and anger and and outrageous posts on Facebook. It makes sense for them to do that. That's what sinful people do. But let that not be said of us as a church. Our hope at Sunnybrook is that we would set an example for what it looks like to love people different from us because that is what God calls us to and that is the example that Jesus set for us. Um, I'd like to just take a moment to pray for our country and for the way the church responds in moments like this. Dear Father, there's no way around the, the pain and the difficulty and the brokenness of this world in weeks like this. 
that may be the only upside to it, the only good side to it is that we're able to see how broken we all are. Lord, our, our longing is for you to return. Our desire is for the day when you will come and make everything right and restore peace and righteousness and unity amongst people. But until that day comes, Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of people here today by your spirit through your church um, to bring righteousness and peace and justice and love um, to the world here. Give wisdom to our leaders. And I pray for your church. I pray that we would be a picture of a bride that is beautiful in, in uh, variety and in diversity. That we would be a picture of people who lay down their own rights for the sake of the other that we would love people well because we have first been loved by you. Let us be shaped by your spirit and by your word in this. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. You're dismissed. <laughs>